And children in, in Syria and, of course, those who are now 
amongst the 1.4 million children who, 1.4 million people who are refugees now in the neighboring countries. This is the kind of thing that they've been exposed to. Children are seeing what no child should ever see. So, so what we're looking at is a bombardment from the air, from the ground. Uh, children have drawn here uh, dead people on the ground. Uh, we've got tanks. We've got so, uh, rockets coming from the so air. It speaks to, I guess, a generation that is going to bear the scars of this of this conflict. Well, that's uh, what we're calling the lost generation. And this is exactly where we are at now, because mm -hmm. we're three years into the conflict. Syria was once a middle-income country and was doing actually very well. Give you an example on education. We had 85% of children in primary school were being were, were being uh, were, were attending school, and now just in Aleppo, in one one city alone, only six percent of children are attending school. Are there countries that you look to now as a warning sign for what happens when children are out of school for three years because of conflict and war? There are similar uh, incidents such as uh, Congo, uh, these long-term conflicts. What are some of like the long-term consequences of, say, you know, being out of school for three, having a generation out of school for three years because of conflict? Right. Well, you not only lose that child, uh, but the, the, the opportunities of an educated child and an educated nation that will grow the nation. So, you know, the longer this goes on, the greater the risk. And that's why they're at risk not only today, but tomorrow. So it, it, we've had a strong political appeal. All the head of the humanitarian agencies had a strong political appeal. And now we have this funding appeal. Uh, because we're not seeing a political solution in sight. So it drags on when, what, what happens to a child when that child is out of school. Not only do you breed, uh, do you breed this sort of sense of being, of literally being lost. And that's why it's very important in the temporary camps that we have, for instance, in Zatari camp in Jordan, that we, uh, we have this uh, regular routine of schooling. Uh, so we have temporary schooling and we're getting children into, into many of the schools, uh, in the surrounding countryside in the surrounding countries such as Lebanon and, and Jordan but it's a different curricula so it's not very easy for children to fit in but you have this you have this sense of being lost and then it also breeds resentment particularly in young boys the boys that we met in Zatari camp for instance uh, were hungry to go back and, and, and fight mm -hmm. and and that's because they're not at school so they're deeply frustrated. Now, I guess as a as an observer to, to what's going on, one thing that frustrates me tremendously is that while the political su situation is sort of stuck and, and we're in this hopeless conflict and people profess to want to help the Syrians in some way, you know, con contributing to this appeal is a very direct way to improve the lot of Syrians displaced and uh, somehow affected by this crisis, yet governments have not fully funded any of the appeals in the past. The previous appeal, which went from January to June, was not funded to the fullest extent possible, and I sort of doubt that this $4.4 billion appeal will reach more than 70% of, of its funding. I mean, how do you deal with these short Falls, that's our necessary feature of these of these appeals. Well, right now we're entering summer, and this is an extremely dry region, very arid region. We're delivering, uh, since the beginning of the year, we're giving access to about 10 million people uh, within Syria to uh, to water. And that is absolutely crucial to, to safe drinking water. That has to continue. We will go into our reserves and try and make do 
But inevitably, if we don't get this funding, what that will mean is that we simply cannot go on. And the consequences of that are, are just un unbearable to consider. Now, where uh, most of the funding, the, the top contributor to UNICEF in, in these appeals typically is the United States. Where else are you getting funding? Well, uh, big, big, the, the big donors are the Scandinavians, the, the EU, uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern donors now are coming out. There are a number of new donors, philanthropists, uh, businessmen, uh, private funding sources. We have UNICEF is unique in that we have our, we entirely uh, rely on voluntary funding. So we have our national committees in the industrialized countries that do a lot of the fundraising appeals themselves. We also have a very active social media group uh, who are who are also involved in this in this outreach. So you know whether it's people buying small packs such as oral rehydration salts uh, that can and vaccines that can save a child's life now, or it's government, or it's funding coming from, from government. It all matters. It all makes a difference. So if people are listening to this, I suppose the best recommendation would be look up their national UNICEF office and uh, find out ways to contribute via that. Yeah, that's right. Online at unicef.org, and if you're in the industrialized countries, each one of the committees has its own, has its own contact and its own entry point and its own website and website portal. And how long have you been at UNICEF? I've been at UNICEF nearly 10 years, okay. uh, an ex-journalist myself, and so did the did the field reporting and the you know the in mostly in Africa, uh, and then was based in South Asia as well for uh, for four years. But that was with that was with UNICEF. So it's often said that the UNICEF is the heart of the United Nations, and at the heart of UNICEF right now is Anthony Lake, former National Security Advisor to President Clinton. Uh, how has his term affected the trajectory? Of, uh, of UNICEF? How has he put his sort of personal stamp well, in the direction of UNICEF? Anthony Lake's uh, big mandate, if you like, is about refocusing UNICEF's core mandate, and it's focusing on uh, on equity issues, so reaching the hardest-to-reach children. Sometimes the hardest-to-reach can be in an urban area right under right under our noses, children living in slums who are, who are simply who simply fall between stools, who do not get registered at birth and therefore do not get into schools, do not Get, uh, do not get into the health system. So that's very much been uh, Tony Lake, as he likes to call himself. Tony uh, has been has been very much his his focus, and of course nutrition. What is uh, uh, just on that equity issue? What is sort of the logic behind wanting to reach the hardest to reach, as opposed to what would seemingly be easier to reach, you know, a broader population? Well, the, those are the those are the kind of low hanging fruit, as we like to call it in, in UN parlance. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if we don't, if, you've, if you're considering something like immunization and vaccines, if you've got a pool of unimmunized un children, they're going to affect those who are immunized as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's about creating a, a level playing field, if you like. So bringing those up who are, who are the hardest, who are the worst off, who are the most marginalized, because they matter, because all children matter. And if we don't, if we don't focus on all of them, we're just, we're just not doing our jobs properly. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very thank much. You. So I'm here with Joe Schur from the uh, the coordinator of the Disaster Risk Reduction and Re 
recovery team. What is that? Disaster Restructuring Recovery Team is a team uh, that I'm heading, uh, based here in New York, but with people in the field. We support governments in their efforts to work on the disaster risk issues, as well as recovery what planning. What is that? that? That's sort of a UN jargon, disaster risk issues. All right. What are talking about? Fair enough. Uh, so what are we talking about? We're talking about natural hazards, floods, tsunamis, uh, hurricanes, earthquakes. Uh, are we talking about supporting governments in reducing the risk that emanates from these natural hazards, so that when these natural hazards occur, the impact of them is uh, as small as possible? And how do you, uh, I mean, how, how do you prepare? Are you talking about like building levees? Are you talking about moving people inland? What, what, uh, so how do you actually do what you said? Okay, there's a whole range of issues actually that you have to address uh, in this regard. First of all, you need to recognize that disasters happen because development went wrong. We put ourselves in harm's way of natural hazards. Uh, so we need to recognize that you need to get development right. This means when you're in an earthquake area, for example, you build schools that are earthquake resistant. So yes, it is about infrastructure and also levees. But it's also, for example, about drills, evacuation drills, surgeon and rescue training. It is also about legislation. You have to have institutions in a country uh, that focus on uh, on this work. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it would seem as if natural disasters are occurring with greater frequency, uh, at least some kinds, hurricanes, strong storms, droughts, uh, as a consequence of climate change. Uh, is this, um, is it, I guess, how is that complicating your work? Is that sort of why you are busier now than you used to be? Or how does that? Uh, this is correct, uh, but it is also more complicated than that. Uh, one driver of increased disaster uh, risk, if, uh, as you said, is uh, climate change. Climate change will uh, increase the frequency and the strength of disasters that occur. Uh, of course, we're talking here about weather-related disasters. We're not talking about earthquakes or volcanoes. Mm -hmm. But more important and actually more of an issue than that is that we continue to build up risk at a very, very uh, rapid rate through our development uh, uh, interventions. Like I said earlier, development gone wrong. Urbanization, for instance, uh, is uh, rapidly increasing and uh, we are not prepared to build in areas integrating the risk uh, into these development efforts. In other words, if we build into floodplains, we have to make sure that we don't get flooded. Uh, so you have two drivers. You have climate change as well as development that's not properly planned. Uh, what is there a, a disaster that could happen that sort of keeps you up at night? Is there one area, one region uh, that uh, would just be totally catastrophic that the world isn't really paying attention to right now? There are several. The one that personally keeps me up, uh, if you like, at night, or the one that I fear at least most, uh, is an earthquake in Kathmandu Valley. I've heard um, that before. Yeah. Uh, it's one yeah. of the catastrophic hotspots really in the world where uh, we're just waiting for it to happen, basically, uh, although a lot of work is going on to, again, minimize it, but it's, it's, it's the big one. An earthquake in Nepal? In Kathmandu Valley in, in particular. Kathmandu Valley in particular. Yeah. How many people are living there? Like, what are your scenarios? Uh, right right now, the estimate is that there might be up to 4 million people living in Kathmandu Valley. So the population doubled over the last 10, 12 years. Uh, if there's an earthquake of the strength of Haiti, 
uh, predictions that could be anywhere between 250 to 400,000 people that are dead, uh, and the nightmare scenario in terms of recovery because of access being very limited. Haiti, you could reach by sea, and you had a functioning airport. Uh, this is most likely not going to happen in Nepal. The functioning airport, I mean, obviously they don't have access to the sea. And I mean, and this is a hot earthquake zone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess so. You know, speaking, what what are you doing to sort of reduce and mitigate that risk? Uh, in the Nepal case, actually, is very interesting because the national community has come together uh, in a very um, coordinated manner, and there's a range of activities going on. Uh, one is to work with government on debt capacities and institutions. A second one is to retrofit schools and hospitals in particular. A third one is to drill uh, authorities, NGOs, volunteers in how to conduct uh, recovery efforts, search and rescue. Uh, and uh, a fourth area uh, is uh, actually outside Kathmandu Valley where we also look at flat risk uh, because all of Nepal is actually quite disaster prone. So there's a whole range of activities going on, but you're talking about many, many years of work ahead because once you have built up the risk, and once you have to retrofit thousands of schools, it becomes very expensive. And who's paying for this? A range of um, uh, development partners. Uh, in this particular effort in Nepal, there's about 15 or so partners that are supporting the government, and of course, national resources itself. Uh, national governments uh, increasingly recognize the issue and start paying within their means themselves for the efforts. They realize that investing in risk reduction saves them a lot of money once the disaster strikes. Well, thank you very much. All right, and I'm now sitting here with Dan Shepard of DPI, right? Yes. Department of Public, Public Information. Information. Uh, now, I saw you recently, not recently, I guess it was a year ago now, at the Rio Summit in uh, Brazil, the, the Rio Plus 20 Sustainable Development Summit. And I know that climate change uh, communications is uh, sort of central to your portfolio. Yes. Um, so talk me out of this. Um, it seems to me that uh, the sort of UNFCC process, the international process to replace what uh, the Kyoto Protocol is hopelessly stuck. That after Copenhagen, after Bali, after all these meetings, nothing concrete has been re has resulted, and it doesn't seem like there is going to be a international climate convention happening anytime soon. So, is there any reason for us to be optimistic or hopeful? Well, actually, I think there is, because the climate change, uh, the negotiation process that started in Bali. Um, uh, Back in like 2007? Six, six, something like seven. that? Okay. Um, uh, it actually set off a whole chain of events that has really made brought about a lot of change. It's brought about like national actions that we haven't seen before on climate change, about countries doing things in their own countries to reduce their emissions, about steps to, to, to live with climate change. And they're now thinking about this issue in Which ways... Which countries are you talking about? Oh, from the United States, China, India, Brazil, everybody. All, 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 all of them. It's affected everybody. Now, the negotiations themselves are tricky. They're complicated. It's complex. There's lots of issues that have to be addressed. But everybody knows that they have to do something. The question is, is that who exactly has to do what? That's what they're fighting about. But they're all positioning themselves now in ways that we had never seen before to ensure that they're doing things that will contribute to an international effort to 
to address climate change. And so, but the international effort to address climate change probably won't be a treaty convention. Well, no, actually, uh, the countries have agreed to negotiate a legally, uh, legally binding treaty by 2015 that would go into force in 2020. Um, so they've agreed to negotiate it. They're not actually negotiating it. They are negotiating. Okay. This is what's going on right now, actually, okay. as we speak. Um, and um, the talks are going to be difficult. Um, they're going to be hard. But every country, the, this conversation is going on in each country as we speak, too, about who should be doing what, how do we reduce our emissions? We've seen natural disasters now, many of them involving um, uh, storms and extreme weather that people are now looking at. Hey, we have to do something uh, about this you know, because what do we have? can we take another hit from a hurricane like Sandy? Um, uh, there's action going on. It's not, it's not always a pretty process. I guess, to me, where I see most action is in sort of new public-private partnerships around sort of discrete parts of the climate change agenda. Uh, you look at, like, the uh, Secretary General's uh, Sustainable Energy for All initiative, programs like that that bring together interested parties but aren't sort of internationally binding agreements. They're just a group of countries and corporations and philanthropies and nonprofits and NGOs coming together to tackle specific issues. But there's nothing that sort of global and comprehensive. Yeah, but I would say these are the things that go, are going to matter in the long run anyway, and these are the actions that have actually been spurred by the by the negotiating process going on. Mm -hmm. These initiatives, like on energy for all, um, on um, promoting sustainable transport, and uh, there's a whole range of issues that uh, are being addressed now because of the negotiations. So. The negotiations, the ultimate agreement, may not even be what anybody expects it to be. It may not be as uh, specific as we think that, uh, well, Kyoto uh, assigned quotas or things like that. We don't know how it's going to end up, yeah. but we do know that everyone has to do something. Sounds like you are lowering expectations. Um, <laughs> no, not exactly. Yeah. I think what we, we need to do, we know that there's a big gap between what's being done and what needs to be done. And the question is, how do you, how do you uh, fill that gap with action? Uh, a legal document isn't going to do it by itself. So what's what's next? Uh, what is the next meeting, the next big uh, confab? Well, there are negotiations going on right now in, in Germany, but the next big conference of the parties is going to be in Warsaw in November, um, and that will move the process along. Um, the Secretary General announced last year in Doha that he would be uh, convening a meeting of leaders um, here in New York uh, next uh, September um, to raise the political ambition um, uh, to help promote uh, work toward a, a, a treaty. Um, and work is now being um, is on the way to lay the groundwork for what this uh, leader summit can achieve. Um, we want to see countries come to it in a position where they're willing to say what they're going to do and can do. And so how would you sort of measure success of these international processes? Like, what, what, what would, like, how would you decide whether or not this process has worked? Well, 
ultimately it, it, it's decided by whether or not we're, we've done enough to address the problem. Have we reduced our greenhouse gas emissions? Have we made our societies, communities more uh, able to uh, withstand the the impacts of climate change that are going to happen anyway. Um, so the success is out there. I mean, it, nature doesn't lie. Um, we have to. We have to. We will know if we're dealing with the problem or not. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. All right. So I am here now with Randy Rydell of the UN Disarmament Commission. Uh, is that office, office for Disarmament Affairs. Office for the Disarmament Affairs. There are actually a couple of disarmament bodies at the UN, are there not? Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, the UN for like six decades has been a uh, involved in, in trying to hammer out standards and norms and laws dealing with disarmament. And there's really several different institutions that contribute to it. Uh, General Assembly adopts resolutions on the subject. There's a treaty-making body in Geneva called the Conference on Disarmament. Right. And then there's a, a few others, including my own office, which works in the UN Secretariat. What we do is try to advise the Secretary General on what he can do in this field, and also to see if we can improve the, what the UN is doing to try to achieve our goals, which are getting rid of weapons of mass destruction and limiting uh, conventional arms. Uh, and so, I guess, where are you working? Are, are you on the ground? What, what sort of work are you doing? Well, we we are on the ground, but um, but also in the air, the 31st floor of the uh, Secretariat building. So we have this uh, global vantage point up there where we can look down on these uh, global problems and uh, try to grapple with them as best we can. When I say on the ground, I mean that we have regional offices in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia Pacific that try to deal with local governments governments and try to help them to implement their own commitments uh, with respect to stopping the spread of uh, nuclear, chemical, biological weapons, trying to curtail illicit trade in small arms and light weapons to keep them from getting being acquired by terrorist groups, um, keeping terrorist groups from getting um, dangerous materials that they can use, uh, toxic chemicals and radioactive materials. And uh, so they provide uh, help at the field level. And what we do here in headquarters is deal mostly with uh, uh, international conferences. We deal with member states. We help delegations here at the UN um, in the treaty-making process. But one thing we don't do is we don't make decisions for states. This is an arena where states come to make decisions. Uh, it, they are in control, and it's their decisions that count. Uh, now, just uh, looking at Syria, which is obviously in the news now as a potential uh, sort of proliferator or user of, of a weapon of mass destruction, uh, how, I mean, uh, I would imagine that sort of that sort of conflict is probably outside the remit of your office, just to the extent that, you know, they don't seem to want to disarm. Is there, so, so does a government sort of have to want to disarm to work with your office? That's really a, a, an excellent question, because the answer is yes. Um, and that, that applies not just to Syria, it applies to the United States, it applies to every country that has these weapons. If they do not see it in their self-interest to get rid of the weapons, there is very little that we can do other than to promote public understanding, to serve as an advocate, and to be a, a reservoir of, of information and knowledge about the, these hazards of these weapons. Um, in the case of Syria, 
I can't tell you how difficult it is to to assess the nature of this threat because we have conflicting information coming in from news reports about uh, uh, many, many claims or allegations of use of chemical weapons. Unfortunately, the level of detail is very scanty. We don't know what kinds of materials are being used. We don't know who is using it. There's conflicting information on when. And there's also the real problem of, of confirming them. Because if you have a, a government or an NGO that comes to us with information that, that a particular dangerous substance was found in the soil, for example, you have to ask, how confident are you that this uh, actually came from Syria? And that, it, and that the toxic material was, in fact, not put there by someone else uh, in order to make some kind of political statement. You have to maintain what is called a chain of custody. And this is what the uh, why the UN has been uh, uh, struggling with this, because we, we just don't have that level of clarity yet. Also, the primary responsibility for investigating this right now um, is, is with the member states, uh, but there's also a group called the, uh, uh, the Secretary General's Mechanism, which is chaired by a, a Swedish scientist right now, Mr. Selstrom, uh, who is trying to conduct uh, site visits and field investigations in Syria. But because of the, un the extremely unstable uh, military situation inside of Syria, it's impossible for us to get in to do these right these investigations right now. So hence we have a, a very troubling stalemate on, underway. Uh, great. Well, sorry on that depressing sour note. Well, Wanda, but thank you so much for your time. Okay. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm here with Andrew Rudd of UN Habitat. What is UN Habitat? Hey, Mark. Nice to be here. Uh, UN Habitat is essentially the UN agency for cities. Okay. And what, uh, so why do cities need special attention? Well, in 2008, uh, half of humanity uh, lived in cities, and that proportion is growing very rapidly. Uh, by 2030, it's predicted this number will, will again uh, increase by a billion people, uh, and 60% of the land area devoted to cities by that point still has to be built. Uh, so in a very short time, uh, cities as we know them uh, will be pretty much unrecognizable. So we have a lot so they're of work just expanding. Cities, cities are, are expanding without any sort of planning or, or anything well, to accompany that. Some have planning, but not nearly enough. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of migration still from rural areas high growth rates in a lot of developing and least developed countries within cities. Um, there is still the um, belief, uh, justifiable I think, that cities offer tremendous opportunities. Yeah. And this is what keeps people coming. Um, there are some well-planned cities out there, but uh, in the main, I'd say that's that's more the exception. I remember maybe a year ago, I was in Chittagong, Bangladesh, mm. and we were exiting the city, driving out to the uh, countryside, and, you know, the center of the city, big, tall buildings, concrete structures. You move a little to the outskirts, uh, smaller structures, wood buildings, a little more to the outskirts, and uh, you have buildings under construction. And then a little more to the outskirts, you have building materials. And it's <laughs> uh, just kind of coming in and scaffolding everywhere. And it seems as if they're just sort of building down this road in a way that um, is very ad hoc. Yeah. 
Um, what are, I guess, uh, what are some of the sort of, what do people not know about some, some of these major global cities uh, and how uh, sort of slums affect uh, sort of the, the social dynamics of these cities? I'd say, well, at least two things. One, um, the mega city, you know, these massive, massive cities that have been a lot in the rest the past past ten years or so. What's your name? Name some cities like Lagos, Sao Paulo, Delhi, yeah, Shanghai. Um, they're not growing as fast as they once were. Fastest urban growth right now is actually in small to intermediate-sized cities. Half a million, a million people. The ones that most people haven't heard of unless they come from that region. Um, second thing I don't think most people understand is that oftentimes dysfunctional parts of cities like slums can be the result of too much zoning, not too little. Especially in a lot of fast-growing cities in the developing world, um, you have still kind of colonial laws on the books. You know, a lot of the cities I just mentioned that were colonized at one point, um, a very rigid zoning in the center, the part you talk about, that has the skyscrapers, the, the proper streets, um, and they've become unaffordable. So that pushes a lot of people who can't afford them, the newcomers, the most vulnerable, to the periphery where there are very few regulations, environment is poor. You have a lot of land speculation and developers looking to make a quick profit. So uh, it may in some cases be too much regulation in one area, too little at the outside that's causing it. And what, and the issue of land grabbing hmm. has become more, I think, relevant in sort of the human rights world recently. Is that an issue that UN Habitat deals with or, or somehow interacts with? Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of countries, I think, hopefully decreasing amount, but a lot of countries still think that the way to uh, avoid slums is to make them illegal. Mm -hmm. Popular fallacy that just, just banning something will make it go away. And of course, that's that's not really true in any aspect of life. Um, things continue to happen for a reason, uh, but when they're illegal, they usually happen in a less sustainable way, even less sustainable, even less healthy way. Um, so banning slums isn't going to make them go away, um, especially newcomers to a city, new migrants. Um, they have no choice but to take land that's that's unoccupied, even if that is illegal. Uh, what what's an example of a big city doing sort of slum upgrades or slum policy well? Well, there, there are quite a few. Um, I don't know that I could single, single one out. Mm -hmm. What would be an element of a sort of a progressive slum policy? I think Brazil in general tends to be working pretty well with many of its cities. Um, it takes a look at the, as they're called, favelas, the existing favelas, um, acknowledges that the people living there have livelihoods, they have social networks. Um, this is kind of their, their infrastructure, so to speak, their capital. Uh, and the worst thing would be actually to uproot them. Mm -hmm. to forcibly relocate this, relocate them elsewhere. So I think to work with the existing communities who are there, not relocate them, try and retrofit in a way these slums with the kind of things they need, 
um, maybe a street, water and sanitation, uh, refuse collection, um, public services, libraries, schools, hospitals, this sort of thing, working with the slums as they are, trying to improve them. Uh, but not trying to eradicate them and start over. Uh, finally, where can people go if they want to learn more about your work? Well, to our website, www.unhabitat.org. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. I'm here with Roland Rich of the UN Democracy Fund. Yeah. Uh, why don't you explain what that is? Okay, well, you know, um, the UN has had a checkered history with the word democracy. Um, right at the very beginning, when the Charter of the United Nations was drafted, uh, the Soviet Union would not allow the word democracy to be written into the Charter. And uh, throughout the Cold War years, it was really impossible for the UN to do anything. Uh, um, in relation to helping countries with their democratization processes. But um, uh, in more recent years, it's become pretty clear that if the UN uh, wants to succeed in its human rights and its peace, and even in its development goals, then democracy is an important way of doing that. Well, it's sort of embedded in the heart of a lot of the peacekeeping missions that have been launched in recent years that sort of support countries in transition. Absolutely. Like things like Liberia or Sierra Leone. Absolutely. There are uh, um, electoral components and human rights components in, in that. And, and another uh, element, so there are many things the UN now does in terms of democratization. The peacekeeping is one. The electoral assistance division is another one that helps countries with their electoral systems. And we, the UN Democracy Fund, we were created in 2005. Um, it's really a, an initiative by two countries, uh, the United States and India. And it's no surprise that uh, those two countries are our principal donors yeah. to the Democracy Fund. Does US. China participate? I've asked them several times, actually, to, yeah. to uh, give us money, uh, because they are experimenting with grassroots democracy at the village level. Um, so I thought they had something to contribute, but uh, they're so far no money away from, from uh, Beijing. Yeah. yeah, okay. But but the U.S. has given us about forty-five million bucks to date, and India has given us thirty-two million dollars to date. So uh, we've had uh, good support from those two countries, and we've had support from thirty-eight other countries. And what do you do with the with that money? What are you do? You have programs okay, on the so, ground? So um, uh, to cut to the chase, we give money to civil society organizations in their own countries. Mm -hmm. to uh, support their voice projects. So this concept of voice um, is one that um, you know we should unpack a little bit. Uh, 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 voice is an essential part in any democratization process. It's, uh, it's how people can express their needs and their grievances and their concerns and their criticisms. And so um, we help uh, NGOs in those countries in lots of different ways to express uh, uh, their concerns and to express their views through these voice projects. And let me give you some examples. Um, uh, we do a number of projects to um, develop community radio. Uh, one of our uh, most successful projects is Women's Democracy Radio in Liberia, okay. uh, um, which I'm so pleased to tell you now gets a lot of male listeners as well. Uh, uh, so it's men and women. Uh, so this is sort of really your, your aim and your, your, um, your target audience is more grassroots, say, absolutely. than parliamentarians? 
others do that. Uh, UNDP has a terrific program working with Parliament, so we've yeah. got to you know, complement each other at the UN. Yeah. Uh, and the one area that had not been filled was the UN working directly with civil society, and so that's what uh, the UN Democracy Fund does. We've given something like 500 grants. So far, the average grant is about $225,000, $230,000, so it's quite a significant amount of money. And we get a big bang for our buck, because when you give money to a, an NGO, you get a lot of people involved. You get a lot of volunteerism in that process. So uh, I think we've, um, we've had an impact. And what countries? Where, where are you working? So um, we try to work in the difficult countries. Um, and that means difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, um, uh, difficult because of uh, uh, problems uh, in development, problems in peace and security. Difficult in terms of uh, their democratic development as well. And um, uh, because we've got such a great brand, the UN brand is such a great brand around the world, um, we've got to try to use that brand to work in the difficult places. So the places we like to work in, of course, in Africa, uh, uh, which has made some great progress in democratization but still needs a lot of assistance. We try to work in the um, Central Asian. What about in, in conflict zones, in hot conflict zones? In do you have operations zones, in, you know, say, Afghanistan? We do We do have operations in Afghanistan. We, we did a terrific program um, which created a... Um, soap opera series for radio. Okay. Um, and in the soap opera, a lot of issues like child brides and, and uh, uh, violence in the home and, and Taliban violence, all these things got, got you know, discussed in one way. It's a very good medium, actually, to discuss these sort of issues well, especially in soap opera. Well, and, and over radio in a country with low literacy yeah. rates like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. DR Congo? It, it touched on, uh, uh, so it yeah. was, you know, really listened to very widely. In DRC? DRC, we're doing a lot. You know, we, we stopped for a couple of years in DRC because the European Union put a lot of money into civil society in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we, we sort of stopped our operations there for a little while. But we, we're funding things again. I think we're funding a project that actually our latest project in DRC is a really exciting one. Um, we are going to register the pygmy population to vote. Okay. And, you know, um, that's what the project document says, that, that we're going to give them identity cards to allow them to vote. But the reality is these identity cards also allow them to send their children to school and to send people to hospital when they're sick. So it's actually, the, you know, the identity card is a critical piece of, uh, of uh, social identification. And um, the pygmy I would imagine. I mean, is there, for a project that's, you know, overtly political like that, where you're politically empowering a previously disenfranchised group, there are, I would imagine that there are forces who would rather that you not do that? that maybe stand to lose politically if yeah. you yeah. give a whole new group, group of people sort of voter registration cards. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, and, and this is where the UN brand is so fantastic. Um, um, very few political actors, uh, uh, maybe outside a couple of little pockets in Washington, D.C., very few political actors find it politically expedient to attack the UN. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and to say no to the UN is a tough thing to do. So, um, you know, by, by making a grant to these bodies, we really, we are empowering them. And maybe finally Somalia, newest emerging democracy-ish yeah, you know, country out there? We did a project in Somalia, um, and we're doing a one in Somaliland now. Um, now, in Somalia, we did a project with the National Union of Somali Journalists, and I still get uh, communications. I tell you what, there is not a week that goes by 
without a Somali journalist being killed, right. arrested, or beaten up. Yeah, um, it's one of the real sad places. But we, you know, basically we uh, allowed them to form this association. They did a lot of training. They they sort of gave themselves courage in, in the way they were. So yeah. um, I'm not saying, you know, we sort of contributed much there, but but we did help the journalists in Somalia. So if uh, people want to learn more about the Democracy Fund? It's on the UN website slash Democracy Fund. That seems pretty uh, pretty relevant. Well, thank you very much, Roland. Okay, my thank pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. And we're back. I'm with Maher Nasser uh, from the Department of Public Information. Welcome. Thank you. So one of your jobs at DPI is to manage the Creative Community Outreach Initiative. Correct. Explain. Uh, the United Nations tries to identify partners and work with all types of partnerships that manage to get the message across. And, of course, we work with television, news, journalists, radio, etc., etc., mm-hmm. with the civil society but also very important with the creative community. There are two levels of that. One is the UN appoints very high-level celebrities as goodwill ambassadors or messages of peace who are sometimes assisting in pushing a message or fundraising for, like, say, UNICEF or other programs. But also, recently, three years ago, we started a program called Creative Community Outreach where we actually try to talk directly to uh, film and television producers, directors, screenwriters, yeah. Uh, to involve them in either if they wish to have material from the United Nations that can be used in their documentary films, yeah. archival material, okay. interviews, or if they even feature films, uh, the plot requires them to film at the UN, yeah. whether here in New York or elsewhere or in the field. We yeah. can also facilitate that. The interpreter being the, uh, the, interpreter the best was, example. There was, was kind of the first one, wasn't it? It was the first one to be actually filmed on site at the yeah. UN, and we've had a couple of others since then. And episodes of television shows? Television shows. What have you had? Name some shows. L.A., um, um, Ag okay, and a few reality shows, The Amazing Race. Uh, we had The Amazing Race here. What did they have Race, to do? They, 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 they last, the finale of the last uh, season, yeah. they ended up at the, the last challenge was at the U.N. They had to identify the flags and the names of the countries that they visited. You should have given them, like, a list of acronyms and had them try to, uh, try to that would have been, been fun. That would have been another What does uh, DPI stand for? That would have been it's good. the <laughs> Department of Public Information. Right. Um, okay, so that... So we also try to work with content. Yeah. So just last month, uh, colleagues, a number of uh, colleagues went to Los Angeles and they uh, met with a uh, number of studios and uh, we have facilitated over the last couple of weeks uh, expert interviews for people writing episodes for Revolution. For what? Revolution. Oh, that show? Yeah. Okay. Show Revolution. I mean, that's one of the things uh, that we've been working with. And uh, That's fine. A so, of so you try to sort of inject subliminal messages into pro-UN messages into uh, I wouldn't call programs. it pro-UN messages yeah. because it's actually more about the issues. Yeah. So the more you educate people, because if you look at smoking, for example, and how, yeah. how the creative community and the yeah. industry, if you take any film in the 70s, yeah. 60s, 80s even smoking was cool yeah. now smoking is uncool you don't see that very often actually it's, it's discouraged yeah. unless it's an error piece so 
that has influenced behavior positively. So yeah. people don't smoke. That's interesting. And, and I think it's, it's that kind of messages. If you look, take the film Blood Diamond, for example. Yeah. And Blood Diamond showed the impact of that on on the civil wars in Sierra Leone, Liberia, the yeah. human impact of that child soldiers, brutality, etc., etc. And, and then it created a change, even enforced a change on the industry itself. So, in like maybe five years ago, uh, when Armando Iannucci, the uh, comedian and the writer, mm-hmm. was uh, writing the, for the film In the Loop, which had scenes here in the UN, I met with him and talked to him about you know the UN, you know my impressions of the UN and. I don't think he included any of my suggestions. However, I did emphasize at the time, and it's better now, that this was when the UN was under heavy construction, mm-hmm. and there's just like you know, asbestos dripping from the walls. Is a pretty. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to. Uh, you know, take the glamour a little bit out of it. Um, so, talking about um, about uh, messengers of peace. So how does how does that happen? How does someone like Stevie Wonder? become a UN messenger of peace you know mm-hmm. say you're a globally recognized A-list star and you want to spread the UN message how does that how does that work what's your first step uh, first I mean first if the person is interested and we try to talk to the person and find out where uh, their interests are yeah. because you have to align the person with something that they are really so they, they somehow contact the UN they either their agents publicists contact yeah. the UN or somebody knows of their interest and they contact us then they and, they, and you're the person they, they probably talk, Correct. talk to first yeah and so you just try to suss out their interest suss out their interest but also verify that they have also been involved in that issue for a while I mean you yeah. cannot just come and say you know I'm interested in child soldiers and then there's no evidence yeah. for the last three, four years that you've been doing something and you just want to do this yeah. for to get your you're coming down you want to go up yeah. in publicity so it yeah. has to be a genuine interest has to be aligned with something that we're interested in with Stevie Wonder he's a super talent he's a superstar yeah. and he is committed to the issue of disability yeah. so with the UN we have also worked with him and that's his highlight and last year for uh, the UN Day concert he actually brought a group of his friends identified a sponsor and he carried the UN Day concert here yeah. at the UN it was fantastic it was the best one we've had in in many years. So what happens um, if you have to turn a celebrity down? I assume that, I assume that happens. Uh, you know. I mean, there are different options. For example, if somebody is, we don't see that they are fit for us as a messenger of peace, but we, we might think that they are fit for a UNICEF or another yeah. fund and program to be a goodwill ambassador. What makes a, so sort we, of a we might make peace different than, say, a goodwill ambassador? Like how, how is that like a level of because of a goodwill ambassador? I mean, because of the funds and programs, they have very specific. So if they have a, an area of specialty that's too specific, yeah. closer to a UN agency than to yeah. our generic yeah. approach, because the UN is. I mean, we can talk about generic issues, but you don't want two children really go to UNICEF. Yeah. If you really, really are interested in pure health issues, go to WHO. Yeah. So we try to just to align the interest and yeah. messages of peace uh, because they are appointed by the. Secretary General and uh, would like to find the bigger names in that category. So one, I'm just sort of thinking about this, 
um, one sort of artist community that doesn't seem to be engaged in the UN terribly deeply, at least yet, is the uh, hip hop community, the Amer American hip hop artists. No sort of messengers of peace from the hip hop mm -hmm. community. And from other communities. From uh, other communities as well. As well. I mean, also, yeah. one of the things we have to look up uh, is, is to make sure that you don't want to appoint somebody and, and put the ESG to appoint somebody and then uh, somebody finds skeletons in their cupboard and then the stories become. Yeah, I mean, if you're a messenger of peace or, or say, taking a goodwill ambassador to be working with a UN office on drugs and crime, and then that person is busted for, for yeah. possession of drugs, it, it just we have to be careful okay. in the choices that we don't compromise the brand of, of, of because it affects others, other yeah. messengers of peace, other goodwill ambassadors, because we also want to protect them in the same way that we hope to take it. Have there ever been sort of messengers of peace that just don't work out? They've had their they were approved, but then you sort of have to, they're not sort of towing the line or they're not. I don't recall any, I don't recall any from, I mean, I've been in this job for two years. I mean, the issue is, is that sometimes because they are very much involved in their own career, that sometimes they don't, they're not always able to, to come yeah. or, or to show up to, to events that we invite them to or to do what Great. we think they could do. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You're welcome. All right, now I'm here with Boaz Paldi of the UN Development Program. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so you are uh, Mr. Social Good Summit at the United Nations. I am. I um, I was uh, very kindly, uh, UNDP was asked to join the Social Good Summit partnership yeah. uh, last year to try and make the Social Good Summit more global. So we should maybe back up because I, you know, I know, I've been to the Social Good Summit before. I've been to two of them, actually. I was, uh, I've presented, at, I interviewed Ted Turner at the Rio Social event, which was a uh, fun and exciting event. Um, and uh, I attend the Social Good Summit at the 92Y here in New York uh, every year, but you're taking this thing global. Yes, so we uh, we basically decided, uh, the Social Good Summit partners decided, and we, we supported them, that it was, uh, it, the conversation needed to leave New York, it needed to go out into the world, it needed to incorporate yeah. people that weren't, you know, necessarily in, in the developed world, or rather in the developing world. Yeah. So, last year, uh, we, uh, UNDP got engaged, uh, we became partners, and we uh, had over 40 separate meetups in person in, in 40 countries around the world. And we had two hub events, one in Beijing and one in Nairobi. Yeah. So essentially the sun never set on the Social Good Summit. It started in Beijing, it moved to Nairobi, and then it moved to New York. And for 24 hours, we were we were everywhere. At the same time, we had all these meetups happening yeah. everywhere. And so, the, you know, just to, for listeners who are uninitiated, the Social Good Summit is a... You know, it, it's, it's a collection of different uh, agencies, the UN Foundation, Mashable, the 92Y, uh, other partners, Foundation. Gates Foundation. Don't want to leave. Ericsson is typically involved. Sometimes they are corporate sponsors. It's not necessarily right. that they're, they're, they're not part of the core team, but they do, do have corporate the sponsors. The idea behind it, though, is to discuss ways in which new forms of communication and social media can achieve real-world social good. Exactly. What we're trying to do is bring together world leaders, entrepreneurs, technologists, interested parties, all talking together on stage on how new media, new technology can, can create a better living environment for all of us. What's, what's really important is that most of that better living environment needs to happen in the developing world. So that's why it was so important to bring in that constituency into it 
many times actually bridging the digital divide where there is no broadband, where there is where it's very difficult to 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 be engaged. So, who are some of the entrepreneurs that you brought on stage uh, in uh, the, the sort of developing world? So, in Nairobi, for instance, we had a we had a, a, a young kid. He, he was like he was like ten years old when 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 he when he did the, when he had his breakthrough. He found a way of um, uh, uh, g- getting lions away from his father's cows. He's a he's a he's a he's a he's a cattle herder family in Kenya, a Maasai cattle herder family, and there was always problems with lions attacking their cows. And obviously, lions are an endangered species anyway, so you don't want to kill them, but you don't want them kind of like chewing on your cows. So he found it a really ingenious way of doing it. He basically had LED lights that would flash in the dark, and the lions would never come near it because they were scared of it. This initiative he started in his little village in Kenya. He went in Kenya everywhere. Everyone is using it, and then he went global. So we had him on stage in Nairobi showing what what well, how he did it. And so that's just one example. Mm-hmm. And and uh, looking forward to the Social Good Summit uh, this September. Uh, you're taking it global again. It's going to be global. It's going to be bigger. We're, we're hoping we for about a hundred different countries this year to participate at least. That's in the developing world. So that's almost a hundred and forty countries worldwide. Um, we are hoping for over two hundred meetups everywhere. Um, we are. We will have two more hub events this year. There will be Kenya for sure. We haven't yeah. decided on the on the third hub event yet, but it will be much much bigger. Will be and and the issues that we're dealing with today. What our hashtag for this year is uh, twenty thirty now. And it, what it, what that essentially means is that what needs to be done for us to have a better future in twenty thirty. Very very close to the UN to the UN. You know, post twenty fifteen agenda. Yeah. We're just we're just saying it differently. And I, and and the twenty thirty is is sort of the next target date for whatever should replace the uh, Millennium Development Goals. So that's sort of a relevant date for in, in UN circles. It is a very relevant date for UN circles, but it's also a relevant date outside of the UN circles because it really is a time where big decisions need to be made. By we need to we need to make decisions on on climate change, on environment, on sustainability, on 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 human on human rights. All these things need to happen by 2030. So, um, you know, you've taken you've taken social good global. You've franchised it. I guess that means there's sort of support for it from the top. Is uh, so our. Helen Clark, Clark uh, she, a, you know, how is how is her interaction with Social Good Summit? Will she be? So Helen Clark is a huge supporter. She really believes that the power of social media, the power of new technology, the power of new media, is really an immense and strong power. She she feels very strongly that UNDP has to engage on all across those platforms, and she's a huge supporter. She's just put out a call of action to all our country offices to get engaged. She was um, in Women Deliver in the Women. Living conference last yeah. year, um, we had an interview with her there that we that we were using for the Social Good Summit, also to get people engaged in the Social yeah. Good Summit. And she is just a huge believer. So it's happening. This thing, there's no, this, it's been amazing to watch this take off. I was at the first one a few years ago, and now it's like, you know, I expect it to be sort of as recognizable as like the TED X or the TED series. I think that but we're not cooler. quite there. I don't, I don't think be. we're quite there yet. 
but I think that's, that's the way we're, we're, we're moving. But it's sort of, it's like an interesting rival to that. Uh, because yes. TEDx is kind of like elitist, um, whereas this is sort of looking at sort of, the, sort of like the people's version of, yeah. of TED, and it's looking at how, you know, individual entrepreneurs, I mean, you do have like high-end people come to these things, uh, top, top level, but it's also, you, you have a good mix of... Yeah, what we try and do in the social summit is bring those top people together with the bottom people, and they sit together and talk about it. So so it's a chance for, for, for an interaction between leaders and entrepreneurs, people who are just starting out with people like Helen Clark, who's yeah. been the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's the head of UNDP. Yeah. And that's gonna, that's the special thing about the Social Good Summit. What we've done this year as well is we've launched a platform that's a, a continuous platform. So even when the Social Good Summit isn't yeah. on, we have what's we we, uh, we have a platform online now that's called Plus Social Good. I'm, I'm a member. I signed up. Excellent. Yeah. So it's www.plussocialgood, all one word, dot org. And it's wonderful. You guys should all get engaged. Well, thank you so much. And that is a wrap. If you have made it to the end, you are arguably more informed about the discrete actions and activities of the United Nations than anyone else in your close circle of friends. Uh, seriously, though, that was a great uh, conversation, series of conversations. Thank you to, to everyone who stopped my little podcasting booth and talked to me. Uh, and you can check out more conversations like this on my podcast, which you're listening to now, uh, which is available for download via iTunes iTunes, and you can listen on UN Dispatch as well. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.